Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and I am out at the Science and Non-Duality Conference in San Jose, California, where I'll be conducting a series of interviews with some of the presenters here at the conference. And the first is with Dorothy Hunt. Welcome, Dorothy. I'll read a brief bio here. Dorothy is the spiritual director of Moon Mountain Sangha, teaches at the request of Adyashanti. She has practiced psychotherapy since 1967, at which point I really needed it, <laughs> and is the founder of the San Francisco Center for Meditation and Psychotherapy. Self-inquiry, as taught by Ramana Maharshi, led to the first of a series of awakenings. In meeting Adyashanti, she was invited to see beyond identification with the absolute or relative. Dorothy is the author of Only This, a contributing author to The Sacred Mirror, Listening from the Heart of Silence, and the online journal Undivided. She is a featured spiritual teacher in the book Ordinary Women, Extraordinary Wisdom. So I guess my first question I just uh, thought of as I was reading this, you're going to like this, were you practicing psychotherapy as a teenager? No. <laughs> <laughs> Have you made a pact with the devil to <laughs> remain so young looking? I'm quite old. <laughs> well, you're well preserved. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, Dorothy, most interviews that I do consist of two components, really. One is just the person's personal journey, and people complain when I don't include enough of that. They say, I want the personal journey. The personal and journey. also, basically, the knowledge, wisdom, teaching, whatever that they have gleaned or amassed from that personal journey. So that's what I'd like to cover in the next 50 minutes, and we can kind of apportion the two things according to how we feel it goes. How yeah. do you question me? Okay. I, most people I know, myself included, can actually remember a day when they first, it first dawned on them that there was such a thing as spiritual development. I can remember mine. Of course, there are many other milestones since then, but did you have such a day? I can't pinpoint it. What I could pinpoint is when my mother died when I was 12, I really, really believed that, I, and I grew up in a Christian tradition, I really believed that I had faith as big as a mustard seed. She had died the day after Christmas. Her birthday was on Easter. Hello there. And I really thought she would come to life. My prayers were so deep. Of course, she did not. And so I got mad at God, and I wanted to know who this God was who could give life and take it away. So my journey was really to find God. I think being thrown into um, a big question early in life, you know, what is life, what is death? I also just wanted to be a normal kid, so it wasn't as if I was having a great spiritual experience at that point. Mostly I just wanted to know who this God was that I was uh, angry with. So, you know, if we fast forward, I, I began to meditate in, in what at that time was a Christian tradition. They said you could meditate on um, scripture. So I chose be still and know that I am God. And it would be like, be still. What is it like to just be, to be still? Be still and know. So that went on for a while, and then other kinds of meditation. And then uh, I got very interested in um, Zen at some, play, at some point along there, and I also was a volunteer for Mother Teresa's Missionaries of Charity um, in the San Francisco area, so I volunteered for many, many years, uh, the AIDS hospice, uh, street work in the, in the slums, uh, their home for pregnant women, and so forth. And then I was one of those people who never, ever wanted a guru. You know, I felt sorry for anyone who, who wanted one. Um, 
I would always say, why, why go to a person when you could have God? That was my sense. And um, then Ramana Maharshi appeared in a dream. And I never knew who this, I didn't know who it was. I didn't know if he was dead or alive. I didn't know um, what he taught. But the power of that, you know, you know that face. <laughs> the power of that loving presence was so palpable that I just knew I had to find out who this was. So I started reading the spiritual teachings of Ramana Maharshi. I can't tell you how many people have told me that he I appeared know. to them in one form or another. Pamela Wilson and many others. Yes, isn't that, it's amazing. He's a busy guy. <laughs> <laughs> or oh, the mind streams are connected in some way. But yeah, so that began a, a period of self-inquiry where it was just a spontaneous thing. It wasn't like, who am I, who am I, you know. It was, who's holding the microphone? Who's eating dinner? Who's you know, who's taking care of her children, who's looking at herself in the mirror. It was just those kind of, kind of spontaneous questions. And also a deepening desire to know the truth, to know, Ramana said, God, self, guru are the same. So it was like, that was percolating. Until a time where that question, you know, if you ask that question and you ask it deeply enough, you'll come to a place of, I don't know. And most times the mind goes, it backs up or it goes off to India or it does something besides stay there at that place of the unknown. But eventually, you know, the question, if we get close enough with the mind to source, it just flips it. You know, it subsumes, it subsumes that idea of separation. So that's what finally happened in terms of the first, what I would call the first realization of truth. How many years had you been doing this sort of thing before it flipped? Uh, Self-inquiry, probably about three years. Okay. And what was that flipping experience like? Well, I was one of those that had the, the big dramatic dancing, crying, falling on the ground. You know. you, in other words, you weren't an oozer. <laughs> I know, right, whatever that is. Oozers are the people who just sort of shift oh, into so slowly. No, this was, a very, this was a definite moment, a definite moment where identity shifted and, um, and just that sense of being everything and, and, and feeling the oneness of all, of all things. Did you go into, I got it, I lost it phase, or did, was that like a transition that never reversed? Well, I mean, it's always deepening, and that was certainly just the first of what I would call um, other kinds of openings, opening the heart and down deeper. Um, I don't know if I saw, thought, ever thought I lost it. What happened... Uh, until I met Adyashanti, was that uh, something began to just hang out in the absolute. So, you know, and Zen, they would say, stuck in emptiness. And that was an experience that uh, I didn't know I was having, actually. <laughs> but one can get very good at staying very safe in that absolute perspective. Mm. So that, that, was, that went on for a while until I met Adya. So when you were kind of stuck in the absolute, so to speak, what impact did that have on your so-called relative life? <laughs> this is a funny, funny story. So at one point, my, my kids were in their teens by, the, by this time. Both my kids are, but my son and I were having this very deep conversation, you know. And so I was trying to explain to him, you know, I'm not really your mother, and you're not, and you're not really my son, and what we really are, and I'm going on and on, and you know, he's kind of scratching his head. And I didn't even know the shift had happened until some years later, and we were on a boat, and he, he's 6'3", but he was laying down on this bench and had his head in my lap, and he just said, oh, mom, I'm so happy you can be my mom again. Oh, so it was kind of, you know, it was that oh, n- not even realizing 
in myself that something had shifted, but it definitely shifted back to that acceptance and uh, the willingness to just live uh, this ordinary human life. Yeah. Do you feel like, um, I mean, you probably, as a teacher, you've probably seen many people go through that phase, right? Um, do you try to help them move on through it um, more, got more it, quickly rather than get stuck there for a long time? You mean the emptiness piece yeah. or the I've got yeah, it, I've I lost it? I'm not a person and, you, you know, Oh, well, it's kind of hard sometimes to break through that because it's so free. It's so detached in a certain way that, you know, one can hang out there for quite a long time. Hmm. It's kind of like you come only halfway around the circle. Yeah. Do you know, to wake up to the absolute is an amazing and important thing to do. And of course, in spiritual teaching, it's often, you know, there's often a division that isn't true, but a division that's made just to invite people to realize there's another dimension of themselves, this transcendent dimension. So it depends on the person. And well, in Zen, situation. isn't that why they whack people with this? If they're, yeah, you know, I never say, did hey, get hey, did whacked. anybody feel that? You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. One great story, you know, someone had had a really true, authentic awakening. Uh, and it wasn't that it wasn't authentic, but uh, I think it was Aiken Roshi threw something at his head. You know, <laughs> Who felt that? Yeah. Do you know, it was, uh, we have to come back into this relative world as what we truly are. That's, to me, what awakening is about. It's not about separating ourselves from it. I mean, if it were about separating ourselves from it, why would we need a relative world? There you go. You know? I mean, what would it all be for? Exactly. That. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So then, what year did you meet Adya? 2001. That's pretty early on, relatively. And uh, I guess his operation wasn't very big at that point. Yeah, it wasn't. We, we both were uh, speakers at a non-dual wisdom and psychotherapy conference mm-hmm. together. And um, a lot of my friends had seen him, but I wasn't looking for a teacher. I felt like the journey had ended. You know, I, I, I was done. Do you know you have that illusion at right. some point? <laughs> As Francis would put it, did someone stick a fork in you? <laughs> yeah, right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So anyway, he, I was the first speaker in the afternoon. He was the keynote speaker, and when he began to talk, I just felt this incredible transmission that I knew I needed. And uh, as Grace would have it, um, he was doing a retreat in the, in the Sierras, I think beginning the very next week, and it had already been set up. And so the organizers of that retreat, I said, you know, if you ever do this sort of thing again, I'd love to be included. And the very next day, one of them said, somebody is too sick to go. Would you like to come? Mm. So I was working as a psychotherapist. My, we had house guests. My husband was in the middle of a trial. He, he was a lawyer. And, and uh, I, ordinarily, I would never have done anything in one week. I'd have given my clients much more notice and so forth. But it was just obvious, go, go. So that was the beginning of my time with Adyashanti. And, you know, he, he really was... Um, well, some, some people called him at that time the closer because so many people came to him who had already had some degree of uh, awakening or some very deep glimpses of true nature. But uh, while I was with uh, Adya, and I still, he is still here in my heart always... But there was this, you know, awakening of the heart and awakening of the hara, we might say, where something just falls away. And, um, and on that, also... On that very first retreat or just during the whole... Well, on that first retreat, there was a sense of things were just what they were without any additions, just washing the dishes. 
not liking or disliking the dishes, just the outhouse, not, ooh, it smells terrible. <laughs> it was just what it was. That didn't last in, you know, indefinitely, but there was that sense on that first retreat with him that this was a dimension um, that was truly free, truly free of additions, of additions from the mind. And somehow Adya facilitated an, an atmosphere in which that recognition was readily available or something. It's a mystery how these things happen. Yeah. I can't say what was the cause of anything, really. I mean, I think everything has infinite causes, really, and conditions. So it was just the experience of that moment. And this was 2001. Now, we'll kind of go through some more details, but fast-forwarding a bit, was or has there been, or do you even believe in, such a thing as a kind of a final realization after which you are not going to be expecting any more significant breakthroughs or do you feel like it's just a never-ending well as i would say in the infinite we are how could there be an end to the deepening you know to the some would argue if it's all one how can one have shallow and deep you know it's just one how can there be levels or gradations of it right i mean reality is as it is you know, this awake space is as it is, um, but our experiences are shifting from moment to moment, aren't they? You know, right now I'm experiencing you nodding. And so experience can deepen. What we are doesn't deepen. It's already as it is. Right. So these people who say, well, everybody's already enlightened, uh-huh. you know, that includes Pol Pot and Adolf Hitler, yeah. and everybody who ever lived, so it's meaningless, as well, far as I can tell. Well, it's an interesting it's an interesting question because you know in in in, aw- in awakening to your true nature you see that everything is that and that there's at least the way it showed up here there's no separate one to enlighten enlighten you know the me thinks there is but to wake up to the totality is is realizing there's no separate one to awaken and therefore you know, there, there are definitely levels of bumping up against that knowingly and those expressions where that hasn't happened. And so if we, if we knew we were one with everything and everyone, I think there would be much less violence yeah. and power tripping and all the rest. We would do unto others as others would, Absolutely. As we would have others do unto us because Absolutely. we would see others as us. As ourselves. Yeah. Absolutely. Which is an interesting point. I mean, would you agree that perhaps spiritual awakening of the type that we're discussing here is the real antidote to the world's problems. Who knows? (laughs) I can't speculate as to what would be the antidote to the world's problems because life in totality are just moving as it it moves minute to minute, moment to moment. Um, But it certainly would help. So let's um, parse it out a little bit. And, you know, you, you've talked, we just agreed that it's kind of an, a never-ending unfoldment or deepening or refinement or clarification so. or whatever. I hope there's no end. Yeah. Um, what are some of the significant milestones that you have encountered, you know, since those initial stages mm-hmm. with Adya? Well, I was speaking about this earlier today with someone, but for me, and I think it's the case for many people, many minds believe that, I couldn't possibly be awake unless all of these things had already happened, you know. Uh, as I said in some poem I wrote one time, until I've planted my peace garden, until all my furniture is arranged in a certain way, until I no longer have this feeling and so forth. But the, the, the surprising thing, uh, here anyway, was just that 
Um, this, this freedom is the freedom to have the experience of the moment without resisting it, without anything saying it shouldn't be here, because here it is. So that's an incredible uh, liberation from self-judgment. It doesn't mean that, that the truth, as it's moving more and more deeply in the system, doesn't see those moments where we're out of alignment, and, and then we have the opportunity to investigate what, what's, what's really here, what, what wants to be seen here. So it's not a go back to egoic living where anything goes, but there's no refusal of what's here. So if it's anger, if it's conflict, if it's, if it's a confused mind, if it's whatever it is, that's what's here. That brings up an interesting question. A lot of people, I've heard that many people say that sort of thing, like whatever it is, anger, confusion, this and that. And I was talking with Mariana Kaplan the other day, and, and we were talking about how all the people she talks to privately who are her spiritual teachers, and many of them are going through all kinds of crazy stuff. Let's talk about the utility of awakening, if we can use that, oh. that phrase. One would hope that we're clearing out a lot of garbage as we have evolved spiritually, and that our life isn't going to be such a chaotic mess. Do you think there's any merit to that notion? Well, as far as I can tell, awakening doesn't give the me anything. No, but doesn't it refine the me? Because we've talked about how there's well, there's more transformation. More absolutely, than, yeah. absolutely, there are transformations. But and we've all seen this, haven't we? With certain spiritual teachers, there's an incredible clarity, mm-hmm. and clarity, an incredible ability to to point in such a way that people feel and experience and and somehow know this dimension that that seems more true, and they're not necessarily grown up in certain other ways. Yeah. Do you know? So there's a uh, growing up and being awake may not happen all together at the same time. <laughs> I used to feel like there was a tight correlation, mm. you know, that whatever degree of spiritual progress you made, there was going to be a, an equivalent degree of all these other uh, lines of it's development. It's going to look a certain way. Yeah, but now I kind of see it as a, a big, stretchy rubber band. <laughs> There's going to be some correlation, and, and the rubber band, once it stretches to a certain point, it's got to pull the other stuff along uh-huh. a little bit, but it has a lot of latitude. Well, it's kind of like, as Adi would say, it's like a bungee cord, you bungee know? Cord, yeah. yeah, you know, you, you, you go very deep, and there's often the result of it coming back up to what, what I would call our egoic mind, which isn't a thing, it's just a movement. It's a movement of thought, the I thought. It, it simply moves to resist, to try to manipulate, to control, all of those things. And it, it can hang out quite a long time. Mm. Do you know? It, it can claim the awakening. And we've seen that happen many, many times. You know, I'm awake and you aren't. But that's completely... I mean, from my perspective, you're not seeing what's true if you make a claim like that. I used to use the analogy of sleeping elephants. Anybody hear this analogy where there's like a whole herd of elephants sleeping, and you manage somehow to tiptoe through the herds of the herd of sleeping elephants and kind of get to the other side, and <laughs> then, but somehow or other, maybe the tiptoeing stirs up a few elephants, and, uh, yeah. and so there's some commotion, and you have to come out again, uh. you know, before the elephants totally wake up. <laughs> uh, but maybe if you if you continue that process long enough. You have elephant-free territory. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's part of what you were, were mentioning a little while ago about the I've got it, I've lost it, because many folks, in fact, most that I know of, who have a deep awakening to their true nature, in, in some, and it's quite authentic, often then will have all this stuff come up. What have I done wrong? I thought I dealt with this for 20 years in therapy, or whatever it is, and here it is again. You know, but what I would say is that Truth and love are really just moving in the system in a way 
to show us wherever we're still divided, wherever there's still a sense of separation. So we haven't done anything wrong. We think, we think awakening looks like the awakening experience. Now that is an incredible experience, but when we're hooked on experience, we're going to keep trying to go for the next the next one, the next big one, or the next bliss moment, or the next whatever, everything fall, falls away moment. But you see, to live as this that's awake is to be present to what's right here and now. So these things come up to be liberated. And we have the opportunity, when that happens, to actually become interested in what is this experience made of? What is it really? You know, what I find in... in terms of working with people and in my own experience as well is what is it like to go through all the layers of experience all the way through because that's what ultimately has a liberating potential. In a discussion we were having the other day with some people that we were contrasting kind of the notion of doing a lot of healing and house cleaning and so on pre-awakening mm. so as to have uh, versus you know, awakening and then having stuff hit the fan <laughs> afterwards because that house cleaning hadn't been done. Do you have any kind of comments on those two approaches? Uh, I, I would say it happens both ways and uh, that the house, the house cleaning post-awakening probably is much easier because there's nothing or there's less resistance to actually being present to what's here. So we're not trying to fix a self anymore, you know, and yet here is this moment of conflict or here is this moment of separation. And so there's, there's more of an interest, if we're devoted to truth, that is, there's more of an interest in, in actually going into it and, and, and finding out for yourself, what is this? Rather than pre-awakening, it's more like, how do I fix a, a deficient me? How do I fix the flaw? How do I never suffer again? How do I, whatever. So there's a, you know, it's, it's more of a linear thing, whereas this is, it feels like it's more of a vertical exploration. Yeah, someone used the example of if you had some poison, let's say, and you drop it into a glass of water, uh, then it's really going to be a, a noxious mm. glass of water. But if you took the same amount of poison and dropped it into an ocean, the ocean would have the capacity yes. to dissipate it and... Yes. It would appear pretty much the same. So yeah. post-awakening, house cleaning, could probably, you can probably process a lot more stuff more efficiently mm -hmm. than pre-awakening. And, you know, I'll just mention this because I think it comes up, uh, at least certainly in people I work with. Uh, if we go down deeply enough through any emotion, you know, the layers, what I would call the layers, uh, you know, could be anger, fear, sadness, and you just keep going and you come to a sense of vulnerability, and most people are spending their entire life never trying to be vulnerable again, <laughs> you know, but this openness when it's moving in the body-mind frequently feels vulnerable in the beginning, you know, because we've been so used to... Um, trying to protect and defend some image of ourselves. Um, so, you know, you get to vulnerability and you realize, mm, there's a sense of not being in control here and what's going to happen if I'm not in control? And then you go to the deeper levels. It's kind of like, and what's beneath that and what's beneath that? If we really want to know the truth about it. So what's beneath that? And then, then, then there's a fear of living or there's a fear of dying. And, and what I've discovered is that for most people, 
there's a, and it's not about a fault, it's just how consciousness is moving in that particular moment, but there's a preference. I would rather be a flawed, deficient, unworthy, unlovable somebody than to face into being no thing. That's infinitely worse from the mind's perspective that's trying to hold up this psychological identity that's separate from reality. I think that might be a bit of a misunderstanding, though, of what the experience is actually going to be once awakening happens. You know, and people read yeah. stories of it, you know, Eckhart Tolle having to sit in a park bench for two years and things like that and say, I don't want that, I have kids to raise. Well, who really wants it? Because it's a subtraction of who you thought you would be. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not a good selling point for enlightenment, yeah. I have to say, but let's be truthful. You know, at least in the experience here, it's a subtraction, it's not an addition. And it's not a, just a neti-neti, but it's like... Life is showing you, circumstance show you, that you aren't what you thought you were, you know, over and over again. Uh, and it's inviting you to keep coming back, coming back, coming back to what I would call zero, you know, how the mind moves and then it comes back to zero. Emotions move and, and then we return to zero. But there are always holdouts, you know, for most of Life us. Not yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Explain your string. You don't probably have it with you, but oh. um, so, just so people understand what I'm... Oh, he, well, I, had, I, I did a presentation yesterday called Untying the Knot of Separation, and I just brought a rope, and there was a <coughs> knot in it. And if we look at the rope as being uh, the movement of, uh, of awareness as consciousness in the body-mind, that's what's identifying with its own creation. It's not something that's wrong or, or, or bad about how the mind is working it's doing itself. But as you begin to inquire, who is this me really? Who is this, you know, what is this not? What is this contraction? You'll feel it, you know, in the body if you're sensitive to energy. You know that there's this, there's a knot uh, of our separate identity. So when we begin to let the light of awareness move into that knot, we begin to see it's, it's, it's simply the misidentification of consciousness itself. So the knot gets a little bit looser and, and maybe it unties itself. We can't make that happen. It's not an intellectual exercise. But as I, I had some other little knotted ropes off of that knot, and those are the holdouts. You know, we'll all have holdouts where there's a contraction around something or someone or some situation. Mm. You know, when we discuss this sort of thing, we're, we're kind of discussing it from human individual perspective in a, in a way, or at least that's the way the language works. I did this and I did that and I experienced this and that and that. But, you know, as you said earlier, it's not that the individual doesn't wake no. up. Um, but it's kind of interesting to zoom out and consider that if everything is the divine, if everything is consciousness, then, um, you know, from the perspective of the divine, as opposed to from the perspective of the so-called individual approaching mm -hmm. the, the divine, it's a different perspective on what's actually taking place in this so-called individual. Do you know where I'm going with that? And would you like to respond to it already? Or no, say, say a little more. Well, just that it seems like we're doing stuff and it seems like, you know, we have a, a, a destiny we're trying to fulfill and that, you know, we want to meet this teacher. We're, we're lucky enough to happen to run into this teacher and all. And, you know, this teacher provides this benefit and so on. But I, I kind of see that there's a sort of a... A divine hand in all of it, and um, it, it, there, there's a kind of a the course of events that leads to our awakening is much more profoundly orchestrated by some much vaster intelligence 
then we actually realize we were only getting a peep of it. And uh, maybe we, on, we only appreciate it much more fully in retrospect. Well, I would say the me has absolutely nothing to do with it. <laughs> you know, really. yeah. I mean, that's what we discover. You know, that the, uh, that the one we thought was the me, you know, actually isn't what we thought. And so when you understand it's all the divine moving. And see, we all want our divine to be only the good, the pure, and the beautiful. But it's also destruction. It's also chaotic. It's also confused mind. Do you know? And we don't want our God to be confused. Do you know? God forbid. But, but here it is. Do you know? So either it's all it or only parts of it are it. And when you see it's all it then there's space to see that the causes and conditions of any one moment being what they are, are vast, and they go back from beginningless time, probably. You know, I, I, can't, I can't really speak about, but, but there's that, just that sense that it's all doing itself. And that doesn't mean there's no perception of choice, because clearly there is. But who's choosing and who's not choosing, you know, it's, that's for the mind to, to, to contemplate. But from that deeper place, you know, there's actually a choicelessness about living. Yeah, I think there's a principle here, which is that kind of knowledge is different in different states of consciousness. Yeah. <clears throat> there's a tendency for people to kind of uh, read a bunch of books and then apply the knowledge that's appropriate to a certain state of consciousness to their own state and right. end up kind of intellectualizing a lot of stuff that you bet. Really should be experiential. You bet, you bet. And that's why I think it's so important to be uh, honest with our own experience, to be, you know, when we stop wanting our life or our experience to look a certain way, and we want the truth more than we want it to look a certain way, then truth comes in to meet that. You know, it, it begins to reveal itself in ever deeper ways. Um, when we're not attempting to have it look a certain way or to match some teachers, you want... I mean, we're all projections of one another on, on one level anyway. So we're projecting onto this teacher or that what we don't see in ourselves yet. Yeah. Like we started out by your telling the story of your mother dying and yes. how you get mad at God when that happened. Right. Um, but I, I think if, if we can acquire the, the ability to regard life as a sort of a divine play that's ultimately benevolent, mm -hmm. that there's a sort of an evolutionary purpose here and that, um, you know, the divine is evolving itself into more and more um, forms, more and more capable of, of uh, embodying the divine, mm -hmm. then we can kind of be more patient and tolerant and appreciative of whatever comes our way, you know, rather than saying, why in the heck did that happen? This shouldn't have happened and all that. Well, it depends on how we define divine, doesn't it? Because I, there's one way of, uh, of, of looking into the no-thingness that I would call um, that dark face of the mystery, you know, where, where once you bump up against that, you could never again say that you know what that is. It's an unnameable mystery. It's, uh, it, it can't be defined. It's, it's kind of like being in deep sleep where there's, there's no world, there's no God, there's no other, there's no self. And yet, there's something that's so profound you can't ever again say, I know. Do you know? At least that's how it feels here. And so, 
are you referring to something that you're experiencing right now or something that you kind of experience in a deep transcendent state and uh, in, in well, retrospect? Well, when it's, it's kind of like these experiences uh, are messengers. You know, we're not trying any longer, hopefully, to have one sustaining experience. We're realizing what it is that's experiencing all of it. You know, and it isn't a separate me that's that's experiencing. So once we have that, um, for lack of a better word, it's an, it's kind of a non-experience of of no thingness. You know, everything falls away, and there's no way you can speak about it. I mean, that's why they say the Tao that can be spoken is not the eternal Tao. There's no way to speak about it. So once you know that that's what's permeating life, that's what is you know, the source, we could say, of life, a mystery that we can never uh, know because we can't make it an object, well, then, then there's just that knowing. You don't have to be having that experience. But when the mind doesn't move, there's nothing here. And when the mind moves, there's this. One thing some people say is that these experiences we have, which aren't perpetual, but they're experience and then sure. they go on, they, we actually do kind of incorporate them, but they become so familiar. Yeah. It's, it's like, new it's normal. like you eat food, you know? And exactly. It becomes tissue in, in your body. Right. right. And uh, you're no longer aware of that meal, but you're benefiting from it. It's yes. kind of actually... Kind yes. Of, yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of like if people have, uh, have dealt with chronic pain or something, there's, there's a new normal. Do you know now? That would be an envision of a limitation and what we're talking about is almost the opposite it's the sense of something's unlimited here it's unlimited in its variety of expression and unlimited in the moment that can be experienced Um, but it then becomes the new normal so you don't have to sustain an experience to know that this that's awake this that's awake in all of us as all of us it's that's what's here in this room right now I've often thought that the, the, the new normal principle that you just brought up is sort of symptomatic of the compassion of God that we acclimate to things. Yeah. You know, because you yeah. see people living in horrendous yeah. circumstances, yeah. but somehow they have, they've acclimated to that to a certain mm-hmm. extent. And if we had to suddenly transition to that and live mm-hmm. that, it would be completely intolerable, but yes. they've grown accustomed, and vice versa. Yes. If, if they were to transition to what we're experiencing, they might be in total bliss. But yeah. we've grown accustomed. <laughs> yeah, you know. it reminds me of, of something Mother Teresa said. Uh, she and she said when she came to this country, you know, she was struck by the spiritual poverty that she didn't find in India. She said, you know, people can be in abject poverty materially, and they may still know that their neighbor needs something, and they'll share yeah. the food. You know, whereas here she found a different kind of poverty. Interesting. So regarding the, the continuum principle that uh-huh. you're talking about, if you look in your experience right now or uh-huh. any time, uh-huh. do you discern that there is something that is a continuum? It's not this way. It's this way. This way. Okay, explain that <laughs> metaphor. Uh, well, the best I could do as a metaphor is, you know, to imagine this kind of cylindrical, eternal now, but has no boundaries whatsoever. And within that, everything that is, has been, or will be, is part of how I would envision or how, you know, what's come to me in terms of how the mind stream is continually moving, but it's moving as this 
eternal now, which isn't an increment of time. When the mind gets hold of something like this, it turns it on its side, and now it looks like we're flowing from past to future. That's what happens when, when this awareness moves through the conditioned mind. It moves as this experience of time, because then we can have a sense of duration. It moves as the experience of space, and we can have a, a construct of form. But for me, from one perspective, you know, of course I can go to many perspectives, uh, as we all can, but it's just here now, and we're experiencing this piece of it. And there can be the mind stream of sports, the mind stream of music, the mind stream of medicine, of physics, of science, of spirituality. Do you know that's all moving itself now? If you could speak to the 17-year-old, was it Dorothy, who, whose mother had 12. just... Twelve. Twelve-year-old Dorothy, uh-huh. whose mother had just died? Yeah. What would you tell her now? That child, you mean? What yeah. would I tell I mean, myself you, as if, a child? You know, if, you're cur- if the current Dorothy could send um. a message to the 12-year-old Dorothy, <laughs> whose mother had just died and was mad at God and um. didn't know what life was all about, you know, what would you like to tell her? Well... In my life, there have been many deaths and, and, and separations and partings and so forth. And, and I would say, because I had this, self, this feeling like I'm here to, to learn that there's no separation and to learn to love. And I've, I've felt that kind of from way, way back. And then I would say, if that's what I'm supposed to learn, then why are all these separations happening? And, you know, I look back on it now and I say, this was life's compassionate movement because what's, what's happened from that is, is, is the, the knowing that there is no separation. And it's been so potent since my husband's death last year, you know, that just there is no separation in this heart that we share. doesn't mean I don't miss him. It doesn't mean that there's no moments of grief. But this that we are, this spirit that we are, we are now, and the form may transform. It doesn't die, it just transforms, right? And we're still what we always were. But now I get to see that uh, spirit of him or of Adya or you or any, you know, here it is in the clouds, here it is in the bird song, here it is in the, you know, in the moment. Yeah. It's not someplace else. I guess you're kind of saying that if you hadn't actually experienced those separations, you might not have learned that lesson. Possibly. You know, we don't know why life moves exactly the way it does. You can, there's a lot of theories about it. But I, I have read many of, you know, many Zen master stories, and many of them lost parents at a young age, some younger than that. And it does throw you into the big questions early. Or it's possible. It does. Yeah, well, that's an interesting point. I mean, whether there's a correlation between the difficulty in life that one encounters at a young age and the zeal with which... Um, you know, one ends up pursuing spiritual realization. Yeah, yeah. I think zeal is an important word because I do feel like our intention, our desire. I mean, when I would first meet with somebody, say for the first time, I would often ask a question like, "What's the deepest desire of your heart?" Because it feels like that's like the rudder of our life, and we may not be conscious of it. But you know, is it really to make a million dollars? If it is. Have it. Yeah, go at it. Go at it. Have at it. But, you know, that the deepest desire, and when that deepest desire is to know the truth or to know God or to know yourself, it invites that experience. Something responds. My former teacher used to say that um, the angels 
in heaven aren't really interested in enlightenment because they've got it so good. You know? It's just <laughs> this beautiful celestial world. They don't feel like closing their eyes or anything else, you know. And that uh, this kind of the school of hard knocks actually gives you more of a an impetus to see what the truth really is. Well, you know, what was the Buddha's whole path, you know? Uh, he saw old age, yeah, suffering, and death, and that pushed him out of it, what most egos would think was an incredible existence, you know, as much, you know, wine, women, and song as he yeah. could possibly want. So, yeah, I mean, life will move however it moves to awaken, to awaken itself in whatever way that happens, and it happens in so many different ways for different people. I don't think there's just, there's not one size fits all. Yeah, I mean, my friend who just handed me this uh, microphone, can he, he's taken like 40,000 pictures of butterflies, and he can name Aww. 100 and something different kinds of butterflies just actually by seeing them fly oh, wow. by and all. Yeah. I mean, look at the the diversity and the richness of nature yeah. itself. Yeah. I mean, the, the unbelievable creativity of the creator, if you want to speak in, in those terms. Sure, so yeah, it's definitely amazing. not a one-trick pony. You know? <laughs> no, right. <laughs> it's an amazing thing, this, this life that we're privileged to live. You know, to have an experience called life is an amazing, it's an amazing gift. Yeah. It's truly an amazing gift. There's, there's a question I typically ask toward the end of most interviews, and, and that is that, um, do you have any sense of where it goes from here for you? I mean, you have kind of a you see a horizon out there that you're moving toward, or, um, or are you just so completely in the now that you don't worry about that? And let well, we can't know that. I mean, can you say what's going to happen tomorrow? No, I but I can sort of say that there, I can see areas of my personal development that I hope will continue to flourish more. Like, you know, I could have more expansion of heart. And, sure, of know, course. More wisdom or right. intellectual understanding. Right. And right. underlying all that, greater clarity of, of consciousness and establishment in, in being. In so, kind of I mean, so there would be the desire to embody more and more fully what, we, what we've both experienced as the truth of our being, right? Yeah. So I would share that with you. Definitely. Does anybody in the audience have a question or two? I, I should probably do that towards the end of each of these interviews. Would anyone yeah, like you to you don't get anything? to do that on Skype, do you? No, you don't. Well, actually, we do. I have a live streaming <laughs> oh, thing that they can type oh, in. Oh, I question. see. I, it's not a question. I just wanted to see if you could improvise and give us a poem. Oh, yeah. <laughs> improvise. Challenge. <laughs> Challenge. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, I've written hundreds and hundreds of poems and I haven't memorized any of them. These flowers on the carpet, they're made out of the same as the flowers outside. Do you know? And if you look deeply enough, you'll see that this energy is moving in these flowers, in these flowers, in the flower of your being. I don't know if that's a poem, but that's a poem. what came to mind. That's great. <laughs> Sir, did you have a question? Yes. Thank you very much. Hello. I, I'm a, a follower of Ramana Maharshi's I'm a very touching. Oh, yeah. beautiful. Um, I, I feel like I have some, uh, personally, some obstructions, like some deep desires. Uh, many of them have subsided, but some haven't. Hmm. So, um, what do you, would you call other obstacles in your own path? That's question one. And the second question is, uh, how do you now go day by day to day with interaction with people? How did that change? You know, I'd be more interested in uh, the idea that you have to get rid of desire. <laughs> Can I speak about that? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> desire is, a, is something that arises in our human experience, doesn't it? 
We're hungry, we desire food. We're thirsty, we desire a drink. Do you know? And the more, the more we can allow this human experience to be what it is. It doesn't mean acting out on every desire. But when we're at war with desire, we're at war with the so-called ego, which is simply a movement of your own mind. It's not a thing. It's not a solid somebody. But when we're at war with our mind, you know, we're just fueling. We're fueling the desire. We're fueling the fight. We're fueling our resistance to what is. So, so in this uh, openness, this space of our own truth, we just see it for what it is. It's not right or wrong. It's just desire here. Now, sometimes the desire is so strong, we'll call it an addiction. But let's face it, if we were all in a 12-step program uh, about a thinking, I'm addicted to thought, right? <laughs> Wouldn't most human beings say that? I'm addicted to thinking. But it feels like we have an opportunity to see if, if just for a moment we're not acting on a desire, what's beneath that? What's underneath that? What's underneath that? Just like I was describing a little earlier, you know. And many people with an addiction, and I'm not saying that was your question, but, you know, we're talking about a very deeply held desire, you know. You know, if you go far enough, there's a sense that many people have, I'll die. If I don't have this, I will die. Well, let's put our head in the dragon's mouth. What's that like? To die in this, into this moment. And then something, it's kind of like, you know, the way I would use my hands to describe it, it's like this awareness, this awake nature of ours, when it's moving from inside the thing that we're trying to get rid of instead of trying to get rid of it, but we just let awareness come inside, it begins to, it begins to liberate it from the inside. Whereas the, mind's, the mind tries to pry it open, or get rid of it, or you know. But for me, anyway, awareness is like a sun that just melts these frozen things. And so much of what feels like a block, it's just some kind of frozen feeling or frozen experience that hasn't, hasn't been allowed to simply be. So when we allow it to be what it is, and I'm talking about our inner experience, you know. It's like I think the Buddha said at one point, you know, hold your anger as though it's your only child. It's kind of like bringing that compassion and that embrace and that intimacy, you know, bringing it close so we can see what is this instead of how do I get rid of it. You know, the mind wants to know how do I get rid of it. But that's, this awake space, this awareness, it, it has no judgment. And that's why it's so much easier to work with the stuff yeah. <laughs> after, right. after we understand that, oh my gosh, this has no judgment whatsoever. You know, it's, it doesn't have an agenda. It's just shining the light on what is. And then we begin to see desire for what it is. Anyway, thanks Thank for the question. We'll, we'll have to end on that note. Okay. Okay. Thank well, it's much, been a pleasure, darling. Yeah. Pleasure Thank you. you. Yeah. <laughs> thanks so much. Thanks so much. This interview is part of an ongoing series of six interviews here at the Science and Non-Duality mm-hmm. Conference, and so far, 312 or 13 interviews on <laughs> BatGap.com. It's amazing, So if this it? is new to you for some reason, please go to BatGap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and uh, check out the past interviews menus. They're, they're categorized in various ways, future interviews menus. 
might even check out the donate button. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Yeah. And we'll see you for the next one.